Hey folks, welcome to the Aspire Natural Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Gerstmar. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you a range of interesting, informative, and yes, entertaining podcasts. All right, folks, without further ado, let's get to the show. Hey, folks, and welcome to another episode. I am Dr. Gersmar with Aspire Natural Health. I am super excited to have one of my friends and experts here. Dr. Allison Seebacker is a naturopathic doctor down in Portland, Oregon, and an expert at treating and dealing with SIBO. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard of it, SIBO, also known as small intestine uh, bacterial overgrowth, is an issue we're seeing quite a bit more of been linked to a variety of conditions. So, Allison... Uh, graciously agreed to come on today, and we're going to talk not only the basics, uh, but we're going to geek out a little bit on SIBO, and especially why is it that treatment works really well and quickly for some people, and they feel great, and they get on. And for other people, uh, SIBO is this knockdown, drag out, you know, almost fight to the death, um, and we just don't, you know, we we it, any any results we get are hard won and hard to keep. So we're going to delve into that a little bit today. So Allison, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So for everyone out there, can you uh, give you know, a brief uh, description? What, what is SIBO and why is it a problem? Oh, yeah. So it's when uh, intestinal bacteria accumulate in the small intestine. Uh, some people call it a colonization. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of us are familiar that the large intestine has good bacteria, has a lot of bacteria down there. Mm-hmm. But the small intestine should not have very much bacteria at all. And the body, in fact, has a lot of protections against accumulation of bacteria in the small intestine. And that's because that's where we do our digestion and absorption of food. And if the bacteria were there, they would interfere with that process. And that's exactly what happens when we have SIBO. They they interfere and all things go awry. So, um, so it, it, it kind of sounds like its name. It's just bacteria in the small intestine where they shouldn't be. But some uh, some important points about this is that it's not bad bacteria, like, you know, in quotes, bad bacteria, pathogenic right. bacteria. Right. It's just normal intestinal bacteria. The issue is that they're in the wrong location. That's a that's kind of a hard concept for a lot of um, people who don't know a lot about, um, you know, the intestines or whatever. They just assume if there's something wrong, it must be the bacteria's fault. It's really the location right. that's the problem. Right. So it's not like, you know, when we talk about parasites where something that we're really not, that it's really we don't want to be in there and then it gets in there and causes trouble with SIBO, we're more looking at stuff that really should be in the intestines in general, but is the wrong amount in the wrong place. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that's what it is. And, you know, it's really common. It's a really common condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what it's been linked to and, and shown. I mean, you mentioned many diseases, but the most uh, noteworthy one is irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's a very common condition. It's the most a common gastrointestinal condition in the world, like worldwide, country right. to country. Right, right. It goes up to as high as 25% in some countries, you know, in our country, um, anywhere from 10 to 20%. And so what studies have shown is that on average, about 60% of IBS is SIBO. It's, it's actually, that's what the condition really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that point, we should probably be renaming it from IBS to SIBO, but whatever. Right, <laughs> we get sure. the concept, you know? Sure, sure. So, um, that's a lot of people. It kind of it kind of uh, makes makes sense when you start to think about. Uh, we won't. I know we won't go all into this, but one of the most um, common risk factors mm-hmm. for what can cause SIBO is food poisoning, which is also known by the name of uh, traveler's diarrhea and stomach flu. Right. Right. Medically acute gastroenteritis, and so, gosh, everyone's had that multiple times. You know, you're not guaranteed to get SIBO if you've had food poisoning, but it's a very common risk factor. And so, then those sorts of statistics begin to make sense, like why so many people have IBS and have SIBO, because it's there's a very common risk factor or cause. Right, right. So I know you uncovered this for me, and it was an interesting thought. Um, I know Dr. Pimentel, and I haven't looked deeply into this, but there's the IBS check uh, test, which actually looks for some antibodies against uh, some specific parts of the intestines and is suggested to be involved in all of this. So it's an interesting idea that there's an autoimmune or could be an autoimmune component to IBS as well, a disease that typically, like in contrast to IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, definitely and 
been known for a long time to be autoimmune, uh, 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 an autoimmune disease, that there, there may be some autoimmunity here in SIBO and in IBS as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that test is really interesting. It, it does test for this exact scenario of having your SIBO um, be caused by, uh, by food poisoning. That's really what this test is for. Mm-hmm. And when a person has, uh, has IBS or SIBO from food poisoning, that has another name. <laughs> of course, right. we have to have a million names, names right. for things. That's right. post-infectious IBS. It's a subcategory of IBS that's been known about for a long time, but not by the public, not by the mm-hmm. sufferers. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot of people knew that they got their, you know, they got their IBS or, you know, they got, uh, they got their illness after, gosh, traveling to Mexico and getting food poisoning, whatever. A lot of people know that, but they didn't know that that's actually a thing. It's post-infectious IBS. So, and now it's been identified uh, by Dr. Pimentel that this is actually SIBO and it does come from an autoimmune uh, triggered mediated process. Mm-hmm. And this test tests for it. Yeah. Do you want me to briefly describe that process? Yeah, just real quick, because a lot of people, this may be really news to them. And of course, if they have IBS, they've gone to their either their primary or maybe a gastroenterologist, and they've either been given, uh, you know, some fiber and things for constipation, or they've been given some anti-diarrhea medications for diarrhea, or maybe they've been given an antidepressant for, you know, for for the mood or or mental peace. Uh, But usually that's where treatment stops. And so this whole concept that A... There could be a bacterial overgrowth driving it when, you know, maybe they've had a colonoscopy done or, or an endoscopy, like they've been scoped or scanned and told there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. Or um, again, that autoimmunity could be playing a role in what's going on. So please just take a minute and, and let people know a little bit more. I'd love to. You know, you said this this might be news to people. And in fact, it's news to a lot of doctors still. Right. right. So it's important, you know, if, if it's a patient who's listening, they, if they, you go to your doctor, they may not know about it because um, it takes a while for this sort of new information to get spread around within the community. And it's only been really, really clearly proven and identified within the last year. So, you know, um, Dr. Pimentel and team have sort of known about this for maybe 10 years and they're working on proving it with study after study and they've finished that work a year ago. So, um, so it's new to a lot of people. And what's phenomenal about this is that IBS traditionally, no one knew the cause. It was a mysterious disease. And so, uh, many people then, whenever there's a mysterious disease, it's, it's often blamed on the mind, on psychology or stress. Not that those things don't play into all disease, but now what's new is that we know an actual pathophysiology of something truly going wrong in the body. So this is new. And here's here's how it works. Um, when there's different types of food poisoning that could be from um, viruses or bacteria and um, other things, but this is bacterial food poisoning. When when bacteria cause food poisoning, those are pathogenic bacteria, the bad bacteria, like mm-hmm. we say. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the all of the bacteria that can cause food poisoning. Uh, secrete uh, one toxin in common, and that is called cytolethal distending toxin. Mm. It's a big mouthful. It's right. called CDT for short. So they, but they all have the same toxin. And so uh, this toxin, a portion of it, the B portion, they have portions that are named by letters. Mm-hmm. The, B, the B portion uh, it happens to look very similar in its chemical structure to a protein that's in one of our small intestine nerve cells. Mm. And so this is how the autoimmunity can be generated is that um, it's called cross-reactivity or molecular mimicry. Right. Basically, right. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, say- I was just going to say molecular mimicry, which we're, we're seeing underlying at least a big chunk. We, we know that uh, certain bacteria look a lot like, you know, thyroid and there's some, some connections between various infections and autoimmune thyroid disease. And there's some connections with, rheumatoid arthritis. And so this is another one of those issues where we're seeing, you know, a well-intentioned immune system that's on the lookout for some of this stuff. And and unfortunately, it just happens to look just enough like something that's there in the body that it can cross over and, and cause this autoimmunity. So... Exactly. Mm -hmm. Perfectly explained. So that's exactly what happens. So the immune system sort of mistakenly targets this protein on one of our small intestine nerve cells um, at the same time or sometimes as a delayed reaction to this to this toxin. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
And so, and that, and so then we get this damage to our nerve cells. Now, these particular nerve cells, they're called ICCs for short. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. They are responsible for generating the migrating motor complex. And the migrating motor complex is a form of movement or motility in the small intestine that, um, that its job, it's called a housekeeper wave. And its job is to clear the small intestine, um, from debris and bacteria and it happens only when we're fasting so between meals in the day and overnight Mm. so it's not the movement of like that people think of as peristalsis that moves food down it's different it's a cleaning thing and so it's really actually the number one protection our body has against SIBO against bacteria accumulating is Mm -hmm. because we have this cleaning wave that Mm -hmm. you know sweeps them down into the large intestine the bacteria so anyway this nerve cell is responsible for generating um, this movement and it gets damaged by our immune system uh, you know falsely but triggered by this looking like this toxin and so then when the number of these cells decrease, we don't have as many of these cells, well then the migrating motor complex waves decrease. And there's a certain threshold that was identified when the number of cells goes below, then you will get SIBO. There's hmm. just there's a threshold. So right. that's the process. And this what this new IBS check test uh, looks for is antibodies to the bacterial toxin, mm-hmm. CDT, CDTB, mm-hmm. and also to the protein on the ICC cells. And that protein is called vinculin. Mm. So the IBS check is looking for autoantibodies to CDTB and vinculin. Right. Protein. right. And that's it. So, you know, to summarize for people here, you get this infection, these bacteria produce this toxin, the immune system, of course, jumps out to try and destroy this bacteria and this toxin, protect your body, but unfortunately in certain people, and again, maybe there's some genetic predisposition or or whatever it might be, but in some people, that immune reaction crosses over and starts targeting some of these cells within our own digestive tract, and when those are damaged sufficiently, then you know, essentially part of the intestine can't do its job anymore. It can't clean itself out. It can't protect itself against, um, well, the analogy that I use for people is, you know, in a stream where the water is flowing, you don't see like scum buildup and stagnation and just absolutely nasty water. But, you know, you just have a little puddle where things aren't moving. And then before long, stuff starts growing in it and you wouldn't want to drink that water anymore. And, uh, and so then, you know, the stream in your intestines suddenly becomes a puddle and now these bacteria can just overgrow, um, and cause, cause problems for people. And just, just a few more points on this is that the, um, the timing of it is different from person to person. So there Mm -hmm. are some people where they're, they, they recover from having the food poisoning, but they're never well since they, Mm -hmm. they, they have their sort of their IBS or their SIBO right away. Right. And then there are other people, probably even more common, mm-hmm. is it's delayed. So it's many months later. And then mm-hmm. that's very hard for them and the doctor to link. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it might be three months later. I think it can go as far out as even six months. Um, because I guess it just took time for that immune system to do that damage. Right. And so it comes, it comes on later. It's delayed. Well- that makes sense because when we're talking about, for example, like thyroid antibodies and Hashimoto's, we can see those antibodies go positive, you know, even five to seven years before people have, you know, symptoms of hypothyroidism. So, you know, the the, the immune system becomes autoimmune in this case, but then, you know, the, the body tries to heal that damage and keep everything working until the damage is so severe that you know, symptoms happen for people. So that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. And then just two other quick points before mm-hmm. we move on sure. is that you said something really interesting before that um, people will go and get scopes and told nothing's wrong. And I just wanted to clarify that the mm-hmm. um, because people can have an endoscopy, which go, you know goes down the mouth and looks into the small intestine. Uh-huh. Uh, the top of the small intestine and told there's nothing wrong. And so if anyone's been in that situation, uh, what's going on there is, is that they would actually have to know ahead of time that they wanted to take a, um, a sample of the fluid there in the small intestine and culture it out mm-hmm. to be able to diagnose SIBO. So that could be confusing for someone because they could think, well, I had an endoscopy. Why didn't it find my SIBO? Right. And it's during endoscopy, a test for bacterial overgrowth is not at all standard. Right. And you'd have to specially ask for it. And even then they may say they don't, they don't want to do it. Right. So it's not part right. of endoscopy. So it just, you know, I thought that was a good point you made. It's no, like, I, you know, I, well, and I appreciate you bringing it up too, because, you know, 
generally what I tell people is, look, endoscopies, which again is the tube they, they're going to put down your mouth and it looks at your throat and your stomach and, and the, the first part of your small intestine, or a colonoscopy, which is a tube that goes basically in the back end and looks at your large intestine, they're mainly, mainly looking for tissue damage. So if the actual tissue looks abnormal, they're going to find things like cancers ulcers they're going to find you know real tissue damage now they can do biopsies and things but like you said um you know unless they know to go in and and grab some of the the fluid that's in there and and by grabbing the fluid the bacteria as well um they're they're not going to see these more what we call functional changes where the tissue itself appears normal uh but but things are not working properly Absolutely. Right. So okay, and then one last point, and then yeah. let's move on to the other yeah, yeah, topic. Yeah, no, no so, problem. Because we we just spent all this time talking about this cause of SIBO, um, yes. I just wanted to say that there are lots of other causes too. We're not going to talk about them now, mm -hmm. but there are plenty other ways people can get SIBO besides food poisoning. I just want to make that point. No, absolutely. Because look, one of the most frequent questions I get, and I'm sure you get it all the time, is like, why did this happen? <laughs> right. And sometimes it's a really obvious cause. Like you said, someone got sick and they never recovered. Or uh, I've seen also plenty of cases they took antibiotics and then they, you know, they never recovered after courses of antibiotics. But some people seemingly not much was going on at the time. Um, and, you know, and they come down with SIBO, basically, or, or digestive problems that we then discover have an underpinning of SIBO underneath it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm holding out there, Allison, for a hope, too, because, you know, the other part, and we won't dive deeper into this today, but is, you know, testing is so challenging because, unfortunately, your small intestine is right in the middle of your digestive tract, and it's really hard to get in there and get to it. So I'm really hoping some you know, genius out there can put together a little pill uh, that will go in and, and grab some of this fluid and grab some of these bacteria and maybe even be able to do, you know, a DNA analysis on them or various things so we can have an easier and, and more accurate way of, of getting information about the small intestine. We would right. all love that. <laughs> yeah. So anybody out there, you know, who's listening, who, who can get on that, like that would be lovely because, you know, one of the issues we have and, and, you know, we, Allison and I can get together and chat some other time, but is, you know, the testing isn't always perfect. And sometimes the testing comes back negative when it really is there. And, you know, as with anything, um, the tests are just not perfect by any means. So, yep. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, there are we I always tell people, you know, we have three main ways right now of treating SIBO. There's diet changes. And so, again, uh, we'll, we won't go too, 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 too far into this, but there's low FODMAP diets, which people can go out there and look on. And your website has, you know, a great handout on a low FODMAP diet that I use very frequently for people. Um, there are also some apps out there now that can be helpful in, in helping people navigate, uh, you know, different low, medium and high FODMAP foods. Uh, there's herbal antimicrobials. Uh, so those are the herbs that kill bacteria. And then there are uh, the prescription antibiotics. And the most common is known as rifaximin or zifaxin. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, and there's a fourth treatment. Really, okay. there's there's really four treatments. Okay. The three you mentioned, mm -hmm. and the fourth is elemental diet, okay. which is yes. extremely important. Right. And and really, the way that we use these is we use the uh, the antibiotics, herbal antibiotics, and elemental diet as the mm -hmm. killing methods. They're mm -hmm. all interchangeable. Mm -hmm. You could think of them as antibiotics mm -hmm. or in, you know, antimicrobial. Right. And then with that, mm -hmm. um, as an adjunct to therapy, we add diet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I, I know you've probably had more more success with it. An elemental diet is essentially a diet that uh, uh, it's essentially n not food. It is nutrients. So essentially, they've been broken down to their their most basic parts, and so your your digestion can absorb them really really fast before uh, the bacteria really get a chance to get at them, and uh, it starves starves those bacteria. So, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, so why is it, Allison? Why why do some people, you know, you, you do diet modifications or an elemental diet, you, you give them some herbs or you give them some antibiotics and they respond just beautifully and everything pretty much resolves and they do really great. And why is it in your experience here, why do some people do so 
like poorly they don't respond very well they they you know they may respond to the treatment but then everything comes roaring back again and uh, and it troubles them um what what you know do you have any thoughts like we want to well, dig into sure. this sure i mean mm-hmm. um first i guess what i'd want to start with is just the just sort of the statistics on mm-hmm. this um mm-hmm. Which is that you know we we've we learned from the Target Three study, big huge study done on over uh, two thousand five hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the third study done on rifaximin, the main antibiotic for mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. for IBS and SIBO. But what mm-hmm. what we can see from that study is that about two thirds of the people with SIBO, it's chronic for them, and they are going to relapse. It's a chronic situation, mm-hmm. and one third, it's not chronic. And so it's important to know that going in, you know, it's very helpful. I mean, if you, if somebody just looks up IBS on Wikipedia, it says it's a chronic condition. Right. And I actually think, you know, and it is, and I, and I actually think most patients and maybe even most doctors don't know that. And if, mm-hmm. if you go in with those uh, expectations, like it can be handled in two weeks, you're, you are up for a lot of disappointment in, right. in both people, you know, right, both doctor right. and patient. Sure. Sure. So it's really important to know that the majority of SIBO is chronic, um, and one third is not. Now, I feel you know I, I'm a specialist in SIBO. That's all I specialize my practice in. So obviously, I'm seeing the two thirds because, right. you know, you, otherwise no one needs to wind up with me if they're the one third. <laughs> right. Sure. No. Totally. So, I, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, you know, so I can I can talk about. It's honestly easier for me to talk about why the two thirds, um, which is that in most cases, we have not been able to treat or fix the underlying cause. And the underlying cause, um, I've been investigating this for about three and a half years, very intensely, because Mm -hmm. to me, this is the most important thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. we know how to, it's the root cause. If we know how to fix it, then we're good. It's very hard. The, um, there's amongst there, basically there's about six or seven, uh, protections against bacterial accumulation against SIBO mm-hmm. and really uh, the underlying causes are when one of one or more of those fails and um, but the, the thing is and I'll, I'll describe them in a minute the yeah. thing is, is that if you read all the studies in the literature um, and what the experts say the experts who write the studies and, and do all these uh, this work there's not an agreement about all of these they're ranked differently mm-hmm. and what there is an agreement about are two main underlying causes. Mm-hmm. And those are deficiency of the migrating motor complex, which I explained earlier. Right. Um, and there, and there's more ways than food poisoning that could, that could be hurting it. And just briefly, besides nerves getting uh, in trouble or damage, there could also, also be muscles because muscles have to contract to make that motion happen. Okay, sure, sure. So those would be some of the ways. And also um, the message has to come down from the brain. So brain damage could be... Uh, another reason why you're having problems with your migrating motor complex. So there's, it's not just one thing there, but, but the concept is deficiency of the migrating motor complex. Mm-hmm. And the next one would be anatomical or structural or mechanical. We could use all those words interchangeably alterations of the small intestine because the small intestine, the way it's just normally set up is bacteria should pass on through it mm-hmm. and down into the large intestine. Bacteria are always coming into the small intestine. They're always coming into our body. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's a lot of different ways that the structure could be impaired. Um, others, but it's kind of like three main ways I think of. One is uh, partial obstruction. That's probably the most common. So any any sort of thing could create a sort of partial obstruction. So it could be like tumor from from cancer. It could be another anatomical structure pushing in and compressing on the small intestine. Mm like mm-hmm. superior mesenteric artery syndrome. I've seen many people with that where another part of the organs pushes. Um, it could be a volvulus. That's a spontaneously formed uh, kinking and twisting of the small intestine where, you know, it just kinks up, things can't move through. Right. Um, there's also um, strictures that come from commonly inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. That's a narrowing of mm-hmm. the intestine. Mm-hmm. And there's um, there's other things. Probably one of the most common ways to get partial obstruction would be adhesions. They are like scar bands that form in the intestines after inflammation or infection. So they're right. common from um, endometriosis or um, post-appendicitis. Okay, so those are the... Um, those are the structural partial, um, sorry, partial obstruction. But right. then there's also things like small intestine diverticuli. Those are little out pocket, out pouchings from the um, small intestine that there's no way for the 
it's like a, like you said, like a pond or, you know, it's like a puddle right. forming. There's no right. for it to get cleaned out. Um, and then lastly, there would be like a fistula. This is like a tunnel that goes from the large intestine to the small intestine. So that, that could happen too. Oh. So like a super highway. Right, know? right. No, interesting. I mean, I'll tell you when most people think of, of diverticuli or people have heard, maybe heard diverticulitis or diverticulosis, it's always in reference to the large intestine. But here you're saying that that can, that same process can happen in the small small intestine as well. Yes, I've had many patients with small intestine diverticuli, and it's just an ongoing infection and really creates SIBO. And, yeah. You know, we really have either we just do continual antimicrobials or, or surgery is required. Right. So, I mean, there are situations that can really create quite a lot of trouble. So back right. to this whole two-thirds chronic thing. Sure. You know, there are a lot of situations that could cause SIBO that First of all, we may not even be able to identify them. They're very hard to identify. Basically, you'd need a doctor who's willing to do some serious investigation work. And a lot of doctors are not willing to do that. Right. You know, various right. imaging and really looking at a big list of what could be doing this and, and, and um, figuring it out. Now, so that's a problem. And then the second thing is, what if we do figure it out? A lot of these conditions that cause SIBO, there is no known cure for. So just for example, the big food poisoning thing with the damage, the autoimmune damage to the um, ICC cells, right. we have no known way of fixing that. And right. Dr. Pimentel currently has been researching that for a long time and is working hard on getting us all a solution. But as of yet, we have none. And another example would be scleroderma, um, another autoimmune disease, mm -hmm. the GI tract, that causes SIBO. It's an extremely common cause of SIBO. Mm. I mean, common to have it in scleroderma. Right, right. And there's that's an incurable progressive autoimmune disease. So there are situations that nobody knows how to fix that can cause SIBO. And I think that's what's going on with the two-thirds, particularly because I think the most common way um, from my experience and from what I've read, the most common way people are getting SIBO is through the food poisoning and that we have no known cure for. Sure. So the reason that it's relapsing is because, uh, because we haven't fixed the underlying cause. So what we do is we, you were saying like, you know, treatment used to be aimed at, you know, the symptoms, you know, laxative or, right. or diarrhea. Mm -hmm, that was, mm -hmm. um, that's frustrating for everybody. And so now that we know about SIBO, we go one layer deeper and we do antimicrobial in nature treatments. And that can get all of the symptoms taken care of with, with one type of intervention. That's fabulous, but right. it's still not the deepest. We know we need to go to the deepest, but we are quite thwarted in many, many ways. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, I hear you. And I know both being naturopathic doctors here, we, we really don't like treating at these, you know, more symptomatic levels. We really just want to get to the, to the root cause of what's going on and resolve that and have, you know, restore health and get people on their way. And, you know, unfortunately... With some of these chronic, you know, especially really challenging conditions, uh, you know, we're always striving to try and figure it out better. But, um, you, you know, we can't always get that resolution that either you and I want or that the patient wants. And so it's unfortunately, it's more about managing and restoring health and really doing our best all around um, and trying to learn yes. more. Yeah. And, and there's two other points I'd like to make on yeah. it. You know, you're kind of, you're also talking about the person where you give a lot of treatments and maybe they don't, um, they don't work very well. And right. so this is very common. And what there's, there's really sort of two causes or two things I could speak to on this. First of all, um, the gas level, the, the sort of the severity of the bacterial overgrowth mm -hmm. matters very much here because uh, what, what we find is that each treatment, and by that I mean um, antibiotics, herbal antibiotics or elemental diet, mm -hmm. um, and well actually here I mean actually just antibiotics and herbal antibiotics, these, okay. will, um, these will only lower per, per treatment course, per mm -hmm. round of treatment, they mm -hmm. will only lower gas so much. There's mm -hmm. just only so much they can do at, a at once at a right. time. sure. And we usually see them lower gas about 30 parts per million on, on average. Okay. Now, sometimes it can be more and then we're all thrilled. Sometimes yeah. it's less. Yeah. Um, now, um, elemental diet is different. And this is why it's such a special treatment. It has the ability to lower gas 
as much as even 150 parts per million in one course. And that's one of the reasons why we, why we reserve it. And we're so like, yes, we want to, we want to do this. It's why, um, one of the reasons why testing is so important with the breath test, because then you can see the gas severity sure. and you can, with this knowledge that I'm sharing, you can predict how many courses you're going to need. Mm. And so then you just, you can start to make an informed choice. Okay. I think it might take four rounds of antibiotics or herbal antibiotics. Do we want to do that? Or do we want to do one course of elemental diet where we might get it in one round? You know? mm, interesting. Interesting. So, okay. um, mm-hmm. so that's one thing is basically the severity of the gas and the bacterial overgrowth and the available treatments. Um, if we're using antibiotics or, or herbal antibiotics, it's going to take, we just know right up front, it's going to take, you know, three rounds, four rounds. And, and then we just, we just, do those rounds, we go for it, and then we see the resolution. Now, there's something else that goes on here, which is that sometimes you you choose which treatment you want. Let's just say it's herbal antibiotics, mm-hmm. and you choose you choose you know within the herbs you choose what you want to do, mm-hmm. and you and um, and you do it and you retest because this is how you know that your treatments are working with the you know when you need multiple courses with high gas is you retest because the person might not feel the symptoms get better um, with with that first course because the gas is still so high. Oh sure, sure. So sure. you know, so mm-hmm. you retest and then you but you see oh gosh we came down you know forty parts we're doing great let's keep going. Right. But sometimes you retest and you see that the. the in this example, we're using herbal antibiotics. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't bring the gas down. It didn't. It's like it didn't work. Right. Um, sometimes that happens. Sometimes then you go, okay, well let's let's try a different herb uh, combination. You try that, it didn't work. Okay, then you go, well let's let's go to. Um, I'm just you know I'm just choosing an example. Sure. Let's go to antibiotic pharmaceutical antibiotics. You try that. It also didn't bring the gas down. Mm-hmm. This is not surprising. This happens. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then you're like, oh, my God, I guess I better go to elemental diet. And it works. Right. And so what I find, and I've seen that happen with all three of those treatments to any of them in any example. So right. elemental diet um, might be the one that works, but it might be antibiotics that work, or it might be herbal antibiotics that work. And, the, and in all of those scenarios, the other two didn't work. Right. And so I just chalk that up to the individual person's uh, bacteria and the sensitivity of what they were going to be killed by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that those herbs or those antibiotics just didn't work with the elemental diet. It's a little harder to understand because really everything should be sensitive to being killed by starvation, but sometimes it just doesn't work. So we just, we don't worry about, okay, you right. know what, that, that method didn't work for you. I switched to another one. This sure. is why it's for me, um, especially as a specialist, it's so important to have uh, several options in my toolkit because I need them. You know? Right. So, Right. So that's the other thing that can happen. It's just the types of method just might not be a good match and you have to switch to right. a different Right. Well, I will tell you, I, I'm, I'm sure you probably know this, Allison, but our, you know, our guts themselves are going to make uh, sugars and various and mucus and various things. And we know that, um, the again, the guts themselves will feed uh, at least some of the bacteria and the idea. Uh, so. Even in a case of starvation, it might be might be the situation um, that the guts, the guts are making on their own are making enough food to keep this population around, which uh, you know normally a really good thing, uh, but but a little counterproductive, unfortunately, in this case. So it's, that's that's exactly been my explanation for why uh, why it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, elemental diet sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's before I forget the one last point I wanted to make on these two thirds is that um, I just wanted wanted people to hear that you know, because this is who I mostly see are the two thirds Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that when we just keep giving our treatment rounds, like with, with the relapses. So, you know, it will take us, you know, whatever amount of treatment rounds we need in the beginning. Right. We get there, we get their SIBO gone. That could take some time. Um, depending on how severe it is. But then we expect relapses. And of course, you know, essential, essential part of treatment to prevent relapses, prokinetic and diet and meal spacing, but particularly prokinetic and diet. Right. And so, um, so even, but even on prokinetic, prokinetic being is, is meant to stimulate the migrating motor complex. Even on them, um, we still expect relapses because by giving them, we still haven't treated the underlying cause. We're just sort of trying to help it right um, sure, sure okay so people get their relapses and what happens we we treat again and everything's great great again and then they hold for some period of remission and then they relapse we treat again so i've you know i've been doing it for about six years now what i can say over this time is that i see people just getting better and better and better as this goes on mm-hmm. as we just as they keep relapsing we keep retreating you know as you were saying you just you, you do all your supportive things you know how to do for general health and i see the remissions being longer i see um during the remissions each t- each 
session of remissions, they feel even better than before, mm-hmm. you know, to heights that they never felt was possible. No, and it's, so yeah. it's good. It's yeah. even so for these two thirds of people, oh, crap, I'm in that two thirds. It's like, right. I see it going well over time. Right. No, and that's really heartening news because I know this can be, whoa. That was my phone. I hadn't put it on silence. No problem. <laughs> it's silence. okay. Um, you know, that's very heartening because I can, you know, definitely in this two thirds and then within that two thirds, the the more the most stubborn cases, um, you know, there's a lot of hopelessness. And again, with any kind of significant chronic disease, um, people can get really hopeless about it. And just hearing that, you know, that to expect that there will be backslides and that the course over, you know, a period of time can be better and better, I think is a tremendous message of hope for people. So thank, thank you for sharing that with people. Oh, um, you're so welcome. <laughs> I think, I think that's good news. Um, Cause instead of looking at SIBO, as uh, you know, again, for most people is going to be we should be viewing it, unfortunately, right now, because we say, okay, for many people, it is autoimmune in nature. Now, there are other causes, like we said, but again, some of those can be things that that really we can't get rid of. If if you have, you know, tons of strictures or or adhesions all through the intestines, you know, we can do things to try and help that. But um, you may be in a bad place and that may essentially make it chronic, um, not autoimmune, but again, still kind of chronic. And so it's more of a management situation. So again, I, I hope most people, if you had rheumatoid arthritis, um, you wouldn't think, okay, great, I'm going to go in and get some treatment and then my rheumatoid arthritis will be gone and it'll never come back again and it won't bother me. Instead, we really have to look at it as now you have this condition and yes, it can be extremely well managed and you can you know, essentially be symptom-free and there may be very little that you're having to do on a day-to-day or month-to-month basis to keep yourself in remission, but it is always kind of something that's hiding there under the covers and we have to take a little care for it. And instead, uh, for, again, for not everybody, but for some people here with SIBO, we have to view the condition very similarly where there's a, you know, a predisposition now to these overgrowths. And, you know, hopefully, again, you get them in a really good place. You're really well managed. It doesn't bother you. Um, there's very little that you have to do day to day. But knowing that that predisposition still lurks there and, it, you know, it's just it's something you have to deal with now. So I think right. um, that shift in mindset, as opposed to I have SIBO, I'm just going to get the treatment, and the SIBO is going to be gone, and everything's fixed. Exactly. You know. okay, now that will be the, the the proper headset for one third of, right. of right. patients. You know? Right. But they're right. going to know real quick. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> We're going to be able to figure out who's the one third and the two thirds pretty fast. Right. You know, and I will say again, I've seen some pretty good experience. I'm sure you have too, Allison, with, you know, uh, uh, one of the other things that, that, that prevents overgrowth is, you know, good digestive secretion. So in this case, uh, you know, many people, especially older people are low on their stomach acid and stomach acid is the first barrier that anything that we swallow has to go through um, to, you know, preventing especially the some of the more nastier things from coming in but I've definitely seen that be helpful for people with SIBO I've also found bile um which is released in the upper small intestine and then reabsorbed when it gets essentially to the bottom of the intestine. Um, I've seen a lot of people with low bile secretion and we get more bile into their diets. And again, that kind of helps to sterilize and destroy some of these overgrowths. So again, I've seen that be quite helpful in trying to just doing everything that you can to get the digestion in a really good place for people. All of that is quite helpful. Yes, and actually, those two you just mentioned, mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't actually mention the the six or seven protections mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. SIBO that mm-hmm. have to fail. But um, right. hi- hydrochloric acid is one, and right. bile is another. Right. Another is uh, digestive enzymes. Mm-hmm. These are all um, part of the body's protections against SIBO, and if they fail, uh, then SIBO could occur. Like I was saying, there's uh, there's debate. You know, the the migrating motor complex and the normal anatomy are considered mm-hmm. to be the strongest. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to bile and enzymes, it's unknown. But hydrochloric acid is um, honestly, it, it took me more than a year to get through all the material written on hypochlorhydria mm-hmm. uh, and proton pump inhibitors, which mm-hmm. cause cause hypochlorhydria and SIBO. Right. It's extremely uh, confusing, and there's a lot of debate. Right. But I can tell you this: it is a 
guaranteed accepted known risk factor. So, um, so you know, kind of like the food poisoning, if you if you proton pump inhibitors or hypochlorhydria is a risk factor for SIBO. Right. It, it's, it's not certain that it's a true underlying cause. And just briefly, the reason why is because it's thought that the MMC would trump that. So mm. for instance, um, okay. if you have a well-working MMC right. um, and you have hypochlorhydria, the MMC should be able to still clear that excess bacteria that's mm. spilling over from the, uh, from the stomach. Right. Um, uh, and there are studies actually to show that. Um, so it's de- it's debated, you know, well, but well, what's not debated is right. the risk factor. Right. Well, look, it makes sense because not everyone who takes acid blocking drugs gets SIBO. Correct. Right? <laughs> Correct. So, yeah. you know, that makes sense. Right. But of course, we don't have a way right now to really quantify, you know, how strong your MMC is and whether you are at severe, you know, low risk, medium Absolutely. risk, or, or high risk of getting uh, SIBO. And it, you know, if, if, so as everything, I mean, as naturopaths, we both know this, it's, it's the constellation. And so, you know, some people uh, get some damage to their migrating motor complex, but the other, you know, the other six or seven factors are strong enough to counter um, and any severity and other people, they're weak and sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back and everything else. And I couldn't so, have said it better. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So, you know, for everyone out there, we want to try and address you know, uh, uh, we address the SIBO itself using these antibiotic therapies, but we also want to try and strengthen. We know that if that's all you do, you just simply take rifaximin, you don't do anything else, your chance of recurrence is exceedingly high. Um, so we really have to go after and try and address as many of these factors as possible. And also bring in, you know, and I, I'm not 100% what to do about it. But again, the brain and the nervous system are also key components here. And that that's everything from, you know, chronically high stress levels. So we can, you know, talk about the sympathetic and parasympathetic as different parts of the nervous system and being chronically stressed is going to shut down the digestive system, those secretions of hydrochloric acid and bile, and also uh, the movement of the intestines as well. And so everything from, you know, just being chronically stressed to severe acute stress and a lot of these other issues. And so I think, again, in trying to surround the overgrowth with other therapies, it's how can we get into the nervous system and most effectively get everything working properly? And I, I don't pretend to have all the answers there, but I certainly know that I, that for many people, I think that's another piece uh, that we need to address. I so agree that, um, you know, chronic stress is uh, affects us all and anything we can do to to switch more over into parasympathetic um, is going to be helpful for our digestion big time right, and right. helpful for us in many other ways. You know? Right, right. Absolutely. When I, you know, like I, like you, I don't know all the ways to do it. Everybody has all different uh, stress management techniques, but the right. two that I like to call, mm-hmm. call attention to for, um, for, for how we stress ourselves so much is right. rushing um, because that really is fight or fight or flight. You know, sure. that's, that's the flight part, right? Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and worrying. I mean, I know it's impossible mm-hmm. not to, but we have to try. <laughs> well, right. We, we like, you know, the, the thing is I say, you know, we don't ask people anymore if they're stressed because, you know, yes. with very rare exception, um, everybody's stressed out. The question is, you know, what are you doing to effectively manage that stress? And, right. and it's not just like, oh, do some meditation. I mean, right. sometimes, you know, really when, if you've got a chronic medical circumstance like this, I mean, mm-hmm. sp- speaking to your point, mm-hmm. uh, it's really something you, you need to take a good look at. Like, for instance, with a rushing and one's schedule, like it's time to actually look and see, can you, can you make your life less stressful? You right. know, are, do you need to change your job? Do you, you know, right. do you need to wait, you know, change your sleeping schedule or what are you doing too many things in your day? I mean, it's, 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 it's a valid point of really looking at. Right. And, and unfortunately, it's so much harder than, than even just a diet change or taking, uh, you know, herbs or antibiotics or everything else is fundamentally we have to get down into not only, you know, we look at uh, everything from kind of early childhood experiences, right, which have shaped uh, the way our nervous system works. So there's this idea that the first 1,000 days, so that's day one would be the day you're conceived. Day 1,000 is roughly about your second birthday, 
that that period of time, both for the gut in terms of establishing your microbiome, the bacteria and everything that live inside your gut, programming your immune system, shaping your nervous system, everything, that period seems to be absolutely key in then determining the sort of the course of your health and disease throughout your life, which is both which for most of us who are beyond two years old here is a little <laughs> is a little disempowering, right? You're thinking, damn, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't have control. So so for those of us with kids or thinking about having kids or with grant, you know, with with kids who are thinking of having kids of their own, our grandchildren, you know. I'm a huge proponent of preconception care, and I know maybe some people are going, "How do we get from SIBO to preconception care here?" But, <laughs> but you know what we're finding that so much of this, uh, you know, the early life programming plays in, and then of course everything that happens from that point forward. So whether it's um, you know psychological issues or stresses or traumas or things, uh, or just habits, like you said, of of you know, hyper-focusing on negativity of overpacking our schedules. And then, then we get into lifestyle of undersleeping and doing all of the, you know, uh, poor food choices and all of these other, other issues, exercise as well, right? So uh, most people know, like, you know, exercise stimulates the digestive system to move as well. That's why a lot of people, after they do some exercise, they have to go to the bathroom and, and have a bowel movement, right? So, um, and then, then on the flip side, uh, you know, over-exercising can be an issue as well. So there's something in marathoners and ultra-long-distance runners where they can actually have, uh, you know, parts of the digestive tract really shut down. And there's even some cases of um, that the guts have become so deprived of blood flow because everything is being sent to the muscles for just hours and hours on end where they actually see damage and destruction to the guts as well. So like everything in life, Allison, there, you know, there's that balance that we're, trying to, we're trying to counsel people on. So, well, all right. Um, is there anything else as we bring this to a close today that, that you want to say or we haven't addressed or you'd like no, to tell people? No, that's perfect. We got it. Okay, awesome. Well, so I think fundamentally what we're saying is, right, that for many people, many cases of IBS are SIBO. And SIBO also plays into many other diseases and dysfunctions. And whether it's secondary, that disease or dysfunction has allowed a SIBO to occur, or where, where you and I are venturing, I think, a little more adventurously is whether that SIBO has set the stage to, to cause other diseases or dysfunctions for people beyond Beyond just irritable bowel syndrome, um, I think I think SIBO is playing playing a big role for a lot of people. Yes, right? and that that many cases of SIBO unfortunately fall into these chronic cases. Um, hopefully, this will change as we get more research. We have more clinicians working uh, and scientists working on trying to to deal with this. But for many people. We need to look at SIBO more as a how do we effectively manage it, um, just like an, any other chronic disease or autoimmune disease. Uh, for some people, of course, that clears up quick and easy, but that we need to, to view it that way. And so when we have relapses or reoccurrences, it's not um, that everything has failed. It's just sort of, it, it's what we have to deal with. Yes, right? Absolutely. And then I guess lastly, to put words in your mouth, Allison, that, that there are, it's not just all the SIBO itself, it's all these other protective mechanisms that the, the guts have to try and prevent this. And if we can, you know, strengthen as many of the other pieces as possible, because, um, you know, you can look at it as a math equation, or I do, it's like, okay, it, we have to have a certain threshold to prevent SIBO, say, just call it 100. And if we have six of these other factors, if some of the numbers are low, but we can make some of the other numbers higher. Can we get, you know, your number above 100 so you no longer are dealing with chronic SIBO? Absolutely. Right. Did I sum it up well? You did. Okay. <laughs> you All right. Well, Allison is really the true expert. I deal with a lot of SIBO cases and treat it, but definitely my hard cases. I'm consulting with her. 
uh, getting her input or even sending people over to her uh, for evaluation uh, and treatment because she has been uh, focusing exclusively on this for a lot of years. And she also is incredibly helpful in translating a lot of the science that's coming out on this uh, back down to a level that clinicians like myself can really take and use with patients. So thank you for all the work that you're doing, Allison. Oh, thank you for saying so. Absolutely. <laughs> well, would you like to give, where can people find out more about you if they want to look you up? Uh, see more that you're doing or come and see you where where would they find more information about you I have a, a free educational website it's called seboinfo.com mm-hmm. and um, on the home page or the welcome page is um, you can sign up for my newsletter it's not it's not a marketing newsletter. It's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. truly just to share um, updated information about SIBO. You know, when the new IBS check test came out, I sent a newsletter to let everybody know all about that, link them to the study, and et cetera. So um, I would encourage people to use my site and, and sign up for the newsletter because anything really exciting and new, which of which there's bound to be a ton of stuff coming in the future because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is such an evolving field, right. that's, how they'll, that's how they'll find out about it. I, you know, I've also been working on a book for... Um, for five or six years now, actually. And what's mm-hmm. taking so long is my research on underlying cause. That has sure. this one chapter <laughs> has sure. delayed my book by years. Right, sure. <laughs> so anyway, when that comes out, I'll announce it in my newsletter. Good, and, good, good. you know, people can mm-hmm. consult with me by Skype. Um, I do tend, I, I don't have a lot of um, office hours for that because I do all this other work right. and I do tend to get quite quite filled up. Um, right. So I personally love to refer people to people like you, yeah. Tim. Sure, you know, sure, yeah. But of course, if somebody's having a tough case, I'm happy to um, to help them right. via Skype. Right. No, fantastic. And that's a great resource for people. I, like I said, I definitely know I've sent people your way and they found it very helpful. So that's always a resource for people as well. Um, I did want to say, uh, the I just quickly, because you brought it back to mind real fast as we wrap up here, the IBS check. So people may hear this and go, great, can I go to my gastro or can I go to my, my primary care doctor? Is this a test that they can get for me? Is it a blood test? What type of test is it? Can you just quickly yes, speak a, to a little bit? It's a blood test and um, any doctor can order it. Uh-huh. And it comes from Commonwealth Labs and they also have a, a relationship with Quest okay. Labs. So the, any any doctor could order it through there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, insurance should be covering it okay. as far as I know. Okay. And, um, and it's used in two ways. It's used in the primary care office or the general practitioner's office as a screening test for IBS. Okay. So if they're, they're not sure you have these symptoms, you know, technically primary care is supposed to rule out IBD, Uh uh, celiac and colon cancer. Right. Uh, When those symptoms are present, this test is able to say that you have IBS and you don't have IBD or celiac. So that, that's one of the amazing things about this test for the primary care office is a screen. Right. Um, and then, um, the second way we're using it is for people like myself. We already ha- we already have the diagnosis of SIBO. We're using it to check for the underlying cause, mm-hmm. which which would be um, deficiency of the migrating motor complex via the damage to the ICC nerve cells. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think at some point again, along with the super pill that can help us, we we really could use like a panel that evaluates these six or seven different factors and kind of ranks them, and we can see what's working well and what's not. Well, I think I know mm-hmm. we've gone over, but I can yeah. tell you that there's um, there's been a machine in development for the testing of. Uh, hopefully, the migrating motor complex that will be able to be used in office. And when I know uh, definitively more on it, um, I will put it in my newsletter. Nice, nice. So we may have to have another, uh, we'll we'll get you on another episode and we'll talk about some of those things for sure. But all right, well, folks, we're going to wrap up here with Allison. So thank you so much for your time. You can check her out on her website, SIBO, S-I-B-O, info, I-N-F-O. So one word, SIBOinfo.com. Sign up for her newsletter um, and And if you'd like to have a a visit or a consult with her, please get in touch with her. All right, Allison, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. All right, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Aspire Natural Health podcast. If you enjoyed it, we hope you've subscribed to us over at iTunes. You can also check us out at our website, www.aspirenaturalhealth.com. That's Aspire as in A-S. P-I-R-E, naturalhealth.com. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash aspirenaturalhealth or check out our library of videos over at YouTube. Just go over to YouTube and punch in Aspire Natural Health. You'll find us there. So a couple great more ways you can check out our free educational materials. 
At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. If you that's you or someone you know, you can always contact us and schedule a free 15-minute consult with myself and find out if we are the right fit and we can help you out with your issues. So simply check us out, check out our website. Again, that's www.aspirenaturalhealth.com or give us a call at 425-202-7849. You can set up that free 15-minute consult. All right, folks, until we meet again, take care.